filibuster receives sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions serving Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. They handle employment issues including wrongful termination, wage disputes, discrimination, equal employment opportunity matters, and more. They also handle civil rights litigation, defamation, and general litigation. For a free consultation, visit EhrlichLawOffice.com slash filibuster. Jason, I understand you have come to some kind of major life decision. Uh, yes, after weeks of consideration uh, and research and thought and really ignoring all the other factors in my life other than this decision, uh, I've determined that in my next season of Football Manager, I'm going to switch to a 442 diamond and away from the 4231. Wow. This is this is a little bit um a little bit shocking. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, Wait, is this with the same team and players or a brand new team? No, same same team. Um, I have a bunch of wingers who can also play up front, and I just signed one too many central midfielders. Um, and I've got to do something, so I'm going to play a formation in which there are many more central midfielders, and the wingers will just have to fight for a job up front. So your your central midfielder you signed is just that good? Uh, yes, he's he's a twenty one. I play with the like fake name players. Uh, I think it's a much more fun experience to to not have the real players at all because you come in with no preconceived notions. Um, so the player I signed is a twenty one year old named Alejandro Samario. He plays for Pumas, and he is already starting for Mexico and is basically tremendous. Um. But I have to wait. I have to wait till I sign him on a pre-contract. That's the, that's oh. the key. You sign everyone on a pre-contract. As soon and as their contract gets within six months, you start trying to make an offer immediately. Um, and that is how you sign all the young players that make you good. And you play in Serie A? Yes, with uh, Pisa, um, whose stadium in real life is like three blocks from the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Outstanding. And also in real life, their head coach is Reno Gattuso, who was last in the news for slapping one of his assistants in the face during a game, uh, <laughs> dur- during some sort of argument. I don't know. I just saw a video of him slapping a guy in the face dur- on the sideline, and it was, who is that guy? It's his assistant. And his assistant didn't quit, so I, I don't know. I want to know more about that dynamic. In the game, you can't slap your assistants, nor would I do so. In the game, I just like to occasionally insult the Jurgen Klinsmann equivalent. <laughs> which is completely out of the blue it doesn't make any sense to do that because i'm the got a response uh no he never says anything back because he is he has no opinion and they've got him down as unflappable which is also kind of funny um <laughs> but also i'm just the manager of a random team in italy uh who is <laughs> calling with a press no americans to say Jurgen Klinsmann sucks, basically. <laughs> and that's, just it. The, that's the whole just the press conference just yes, for that. Like calling the media and saying, guys, guess what? This guy sucks. And that's the end of it. But you are American me... in the game, so it, there is oh, some. I'm, I, I signed up as close to myself as possible. So I'm my age, uh, my, my level of playing experience, uh, all of that stuff. Um, but I've gotten, I've taken Pisa up to the Europa League in Syria, so now I'm very well respected. But I still occasionally am like, Jurgen Klinsmann sucks, though. <laughs> so, are you being pursued by any other teams uh, or another league? Uh, I keep, we got to know if, if if your digital persona is in demand. Uh, I keep being linked. If there's like a takeover, if if another club in Italy is being taken over, uh, I get linked to possibly being poached as the, as the new coach under the new regime. Um, Torino actually offered me a contract legitimately. Um, but I turned them down because I was already better than Torino. Screw those guys. Even though they did tell me that I could have like 18 million euros in uh, transfer budget money, whereas Pisa can afford to offer me like five. <laughs> so it is a lot, but I'm the whole point of football manager. When you start with a team, I, I've never played it where you jump clubs. I just like, I'm sticking this out until I've won everything I can. And then I'll start a new game. So how many seasons have you been with Pisa at this point? This is... Six, okay. and they start. They start in Serie C. So I got. Okay. I didn't get promoted my first season. I missed by like a point. 
Then I got promoted to Serie B. Then I got promoted again to Serie A. And there was a year where I had to, like, stabilize. And then after that, Europa League. And now this time, probably Europa League again. Have you been linked to Swansea City yet? Uh, no, I don't, I don't feel like getting run out of town because I don't say football and mate. Yeah, that's, And because, uh, you know, it would be nice to have a chance to, like, pick your players a little bit. <laughs> yeah, being, being hired and fired before you see even the, the dawn of a transfer window is, it's, it's pretty harsh. Sorry, Bob Bradley. Hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. We are a DC United podcast, even if we're talking about football manager and, you know, a, a, a league that thinks more highly of itself than it probably should. Uh, as good as it is, the Premier League, uh, they, they still think higher, more highly of themselves than they probably deserve. I'm Adam Taylor. Um, they are Jason Anderson, you know, Italian manager extraordinaire and Ben Bromley, cat and human and dog parent extraordinaire. Uh, we're all from blackandredunited.com, where we write about DC United and other things in the world of soccer. Tonight, we are talking about DC United, and we're also talking about, uh, I guess, soccer culture in DC a little bit. Um, I sat down with Ari Gadenson, who is the owner of a new soccer bar in Ivy City called Doc FC. He also owns. Uh, a few restaurants out of uh, around town um, in Barracks Row on 14th Street, some other ones in Ivy City. Um, so I talked to him about his time growing up in D.C., going to Bolivia and Italy to play soccer, and coming back uh, as a restaurateur. So stick around to listen to that. Uh, before we do anything, though, Ben, what are you drinking? So... I made a very long road trip uh, this Christmas season uh, to go to southwestern Virginia uh, to see my in-laws, then to go to Tennessee to see my grandparents and introduce them to their great-granddaughter. And while in Tennessee, uh, everyone knows how I like to pick up uh, local beers, uh, I picked up a beer by the Yeehaw Brewing Company. Uh, it is their Dunkel Uh and yeah, it's a it's a nice just multi dunkel. Uh, it says on the label "Fine Southern Beer," which it is indeed. So if you're ever in Eastern Tennessee, uh, pick up a beer by Yeehaw. My favorite memory of Yeehaw has nothing to do with the beer or the TV show. Um, when Anne Louise and I were on our honeymoon in Vancouver, we were in a hot tub on the roof of our hotel, and this English guy. Uh, was also in the hot tub and his teenage son was in the pool and they had retraced the royal couple's uh, route across Canada okay. and and said that we even went to the Calgary Stampede. Yeehaw! <laughs> it was amazing. Hearing an English person say yeehaw just spur of the moment. It was I, I by this. far my favorite memory of the phrase yeehaw. I want to know. And I hope that, it's yours um, now too. The Calgary Olympics probably taught many, many, many American, or not the Calgary Olympics, the movie Cool Runnings, which yes. took place during the Calgary Olympics, probably taught many, many Americans that Calgary is actually a very, very much what we think of as a like Western style city. Most people probably didn't know that about Canada that that was there as well until they yeah. saw Cool Runnings. They uh, Americans had heard of it, the city, if only because oh, yeah. of the hockey the Calgary team. Flames. Yes, that's what that's what you know about them, but that doesn't yes. tell you that there's like rodeos in Calgary. No, but there are. Jason, because what are you drinking? Jamaican, I was going to say it's because the Jamaican team goes to that country western bar and gets into a fight with the East Germans. <laughs> um, that's why you learn that Calgary yes. is a western style city. Um, maybe I've seen Cool Runnings twenty times. Um, <laughs> I it. I am drinking. Um, so last. I guess up up through last summer, I was talking a lot about this Technico Reposado uh, tequila that I found. The bottle had a luchador on it. The the cap or the top is a luchador mask carved out of wood. I went one better. Uh, I went back to the the same the the same place to get. Um, I wanted to try some of their other lines, so I got the Technico Añejo. Um, oh, wow. Which is the thing is this stuff is it's delicious and it's not expensive. The Technico Añejo is thirty dollars, um, 
and it is delicious. Uh, it has like a butterscotch kind of note to it. Um, it's not like butterscotch. It's don't think of this as like blanco tequila and like butterscotch candy combined. This is not that. Um, this has been aged for a while, and it's uh, it's pretty spectacular. I've got to say. I also got their Rudo Blanco, but I'm not drinking that right now, so I can't. I brought it up, even though I I'm not drinking it, so I cheated. I am drinking mixed Michter's bourbon because I I was gonna do something else and had none of the fixins that I thought I had. Well, I had one of the fixins. I had club soda. I thought I had citrus and other stuff, and I just I don't. And so uh, I I bum, hung bum, myself bada. out to dry. Exactly. Yeah, so I, I cued myself this, the, the sad horns. Thank you, Ben, for that. Yep. Um, but Michter's bourbon is nothing to sneeze at, to use a cliche, um, that I'm not entirely we don't, sure it fits. We don't recommend sneezing at any bourbon. No. It tends to make the bourbon less good than it is. Yep. Um, even bad bourbon. Don't sneeze at it. It's only going to make it worse. Let's talk about DC United. Uh, we do have a little bit of DC United news from the holiday weekend, and we're going to go through that and then do our last entry of Cake or Death uh, on, of 2016. First bit of news, Andrew Dykstra uh, is gone from DC United. Uh, the, the resident home brewer of the Black and Red has was, was taken in the second stage of the reentry draft by Sporting Kansas City. Andrew Dykstra... Uh, if he plays in MLS next year, will be a spork. Uh, ben, wh- what do you have to say about this this move? I mean, it makes sense for all involved. Uh, DC United had five keepers on the roster at various times last year. Uh, Sporting Kansas City lost uh, their backup goalkeeper in Alec Khan in the expansion draft, I believe. Uh, and so, yeah, it makes sense for everybody involved. Uh, Dykstra has proven that he's a... Uh, solid MLS backup quality keeper who can make spot starts, and that's what you need out of a backup. Uh, I think we can all agree at this point that he's not starting quality, but you need quality backups in this league. So uh, it's good for him that he'll be able to continue playing in MLS next year, uh, continue earning a paycheck. Uh, He goes back to the Midwest after starting his career in Chicago, so maybe he'll enjoy that. And I wish him the best of luck. Yeah, I'm, I, I was thinking I'm glad that he's going to a city that has a decent um, brewing scene. But at this point, I'm not sure what city doesn't have a decent brewing scene. So I guess that's progress in its own way. Uh, I agree, though. He, he really didn't fit into the plans here. Um, and Kansas City saw their chance to get first dibs at him. So why not take him if you're looking for a backup goalkeeper? And, and the thing is, Dykstra isn't... It, that should be an actual competition because Tim Melia isn't anything special. Yeah. Um, people get caught up in his story where he was the league pool goalkeeper for a while at one point and has risen to starter in Kansas City. But uh, there's nothing there that Dykstra, I mean, if Dykstra plays his best, he could push Melia to the bench. Uh, Vermes has not been hesitant to change goalkeepers. Um, like, like with Khan. Right. So this might be a better opportunity. Uh, for Dykstra, not just to be a backup, but to actually have a shot at starting, which is kind of the, it's not the same process, but it's kind of the trajectory that Joe Willis took, um, where he knew he wasn't going to get ahead here, but uh, now he started enough games. Tyler Derrick kept getting suspended or injured last season, so it and was he's never- also not that great. Right, so the, the combination of those things meant that Willis, I think Willis played like 13 or 14 games last year. Um, so that's the kind of thing that Dykstra will find himself in a situation where maybe he can actually, uh, take over somewhere, um, which is great for him because it wasn't going to happen here, especially with Travis Wara surpassing him last season. So, um, I mean, unless he didn't want to leave the area at all, and that's, that kind of sucks because he's from the region, but, um, as far as his professional career goes, it's probably for the best. So one player out, one player in. Jose Guillermo Ortiz is coming from Costa Rica on loan. He was, until recently, uh, a forward slash winger for Alajolense, was sold to Herediano, also in Costa Rica, and immediately 
essentially loaned to DC United. He's going to be here for one year. He signed a two-year deal for Herediano, which means that if United wants to sign him at the end of it, and there is, as is almost always the case in MLS, an option for a permanent transfer at the end of the one-year loan, it'll be Herediano and not Alo Halense accepting that that influx of cash from DC United and MLS. Uh, Like I said, he's a forward slash winger, uh, spent some time as a second forward. Jason, how does he fit in to uh, DC United's system at this point now that there's really not a two striker formation that's going to see, you know, a lot of time out of the gates. Uh, that's, that's a good question. It's hard to say at this point because he is more of a forward than a winger. He's not the kind of guy that can play both, um, with the equal ability. He's sort of a winger when you need a winger, but he would be better up front. Um, I think we'll probably see him mostly as another super sub. I think that's the idea is that, his job is going to be coming off the bench. Um, he can play the lone forward role, but he's not going to play back to goal. So if United is maybe leading a game and the other team is starting to open up uh, and leave giant gaps, you could play him up front for Mullins and get in behind a little easier. Um, him and Nagel coming in off the bench and, and streaking in behind the defense would be pretty... Uh, pretty deadly on the counter, and that's a good way to finish games off. It's fun to score, you know, if you're up 2-1, it's fun to add the third rather than just hang on for dear life. Um, but that's not always the game plan, or that's not always the best approach for a given opponent. Um, he can play on the wing. It's not like he's useless on the wing. Um, it's just that on this team, he will be the fourth best winger, and it will be kind of, there's a top three, and then he'll be the fourth, and there won't be, I don't see him jumping into that that group where he's challenging for, for minutes. Um, we saw last year that Acosta needs to be in the th- a three-man central midfield um, to be at his best, and so that kind of reduces the options for a second forward. If you want a second forward and you want to play three central midfielders, you have to pull a defender and play three at the back, and I don't think that's coming anytime soon. Um, so the issue, the, the, the thing that's curious to me is that he, Ortiz and Kamara both kind of play a broadly similar game. They both want to run the channels. Um, so I'm not sure. Uh, it's, it, Olsen has been big on having forwards with a different skill set. Each forward brings something else to the table. Those two are kind of redundant from what I've seen, but maybe Ortiz has more to his game. I'm sure the coaching staff has seen many, many more games of his than I have. I've only seen his Champions League outings. Um, and I think I watched the one Saprisa um, Alo Valente game to prep for the Champions League a couple years ago because it was the, the first game of the year and there's no tape. So uh, I think mm-hmm. me and Ryan Kiefer were watching a, a stream of that. Um, the Costa Rican National TV Network had just put it online, so that was cool. Um, nice. but yeah. I know in his last in his last couple games for Alohalense, he had some, I think, two assists from the wing right. over those last couple weeks. So it seems it, it seems possible that he has grown into that role potentially since we we last saw him in any kind of competition mm-hmm. on you know north of Costa Rica. Right. Um, and I think I I would be hopeful that's the case. Otherwise. Right. Uh, I agree with you that he's he's going to be a situational player, right? Yeah. Only he is, he is a talented player, right? Um, this isn't like a head scratcher where it's like, what is this guy even going to do? Like he is a good player, um, and I think in MLS in general he should be able to succeed. It's just a question of in this formation, where will the minutes come from? Um, and maybe the plan is. Because he's only 24, maybe the plan is that if he proves himself good enough as a winger uh, between games and training sessions, that maybe in 2018, where United would have, I think Lloyd Sam would be 34 in 2018, and then Niarco and Nagel would both be 31 or 32, mm-hmm. you can push one of them aside and have Ortiz step up into that group. And maybe that's the purpose of the loan. But it's hard to say at this point. We'll see... The preseason's not that far away. We'll start to see exactly what Olsen has in store. And we should also keep in mind that what we see in preseason uh, for new acquisitions is not where they end the year, as uh, we'll get into later with all that that section of things. (laughs) Um, 
The last p- bit of news involves Sean Franklin, fullback for DC United. Ended, ended the year injured, but uh, should be back healthy for 2017. And that is now official that he, now that he is re-signed with the team on a multiple-year contract. Probably, we're all assuming, uh, two years plus a club-held option for a third. Um, he's been he's been pretty steady. Uh, seemingly lost a step if he's going against pure speed. He's been burned a couple times over the, the last couple years. Uh, just on a, a quick step, Kaká did the business to him uh, in the season finale this year um ben happy to see franklin returning for next year yeah definitely um with the departures uh from the fullback core this year uh dc united needed to re-sign franklin uh obviously taylor kemp is a starter on the left uh they need and franklin will be the starter on the right uh nick de leon is not ready to be anointed as the definite day one 2017 fullback starter. Uh, they definitely need Franklin there. And they're going to have to replace Corb and Mishu, and so they're going to need to you know, get players in those positions too. So you can't... It's You can, but it's very difficult to replace like three quarters of all of your fullbacks in one year. And so bringing Franklin back, starting him at the beginning of the year, definitely a good thing. He'll probably start the whole year unless something amazing happens and if something amazing happens well then that's just great right well if nick de leon is there and and continues to be capable at at right back then at least sean franklin doesn't have to play the whole year which he basically did this year right and yes he needs to not play every game because yeah we don't want him to fall apart into a jumble of parts yes uh you know, broken pile of Sean Franklin doesn't do anybody any good. Right. right. Least and of all Sean Franklin. The good thing with, with Daly on coming around as a potential right back here and there is that over the course of the season, Franklin can get, get a rest. You can rotate him out. Yeah. And um, that probably, I mean, both of both of his injuries have been overuse injuries. Um, I think it was both, both times it was like Achilles tendonitis. It's like the most overuse injury you get. Um, it's just a you know, a veteran player having to play too many games and go for too long and your body gets worn out. Um, so if, if he doesn't start, you know, if, if De Leon starts at one game a month over the course of the season or maybe two games when the, the games get uh, stacked up, uh, midweek games and things like that, that adds up down the stretch. So he's not broken down by the time October comes around and you have him on the field in the playoffs, which makes a big difference. Um so that's uh, a nice spot to be in, but but Ben's right. The the team does need fullbacks. I mean, there is no backup to Taylor Kemp on the roster right now. Um, the only backup to Franklin is a midfielder. So they are going to need to add players, but it is a better situation now with, with two options there. Yeah, so Jason, you mentioned earlier that Ortiz might fit DC United's roster a little better if Ben Olsen played a 3-5-2. Do you think there's any chance he works that... I, I don't want to say wrinkle, because it would be a bigger change than I think the word wrinkle implies. But as a secondary look, perhaps late in games, the way um, I know NYCFC has has switched to a 3-5-2 in games. I know uh, Toronto FC started off using it as a secondary look before transitioning full-time hardcore during the playoffs. Sean Franklin has dabbled at center back in the past, um, kind of on emer- an emergency basis. Do you think we could see a player pulled off, Franklin shifted into the center, and you know if DC United really needs to go for it, they, they go to 3-5-2? with Franklin as that third center back alongside Boswell and Birnbaum. I mean, maybe, but the issue, you you run into a lot of issues with that. I I think there are, there is a chance we could see some sort of three, five, two in an emergency. We saw it a couple times last season where Steve Birnbaum was thrown up front. um, And the existing, the, the rest of the defenders just went to, they just pulled in a little bit and Birnbaum went up front. There wasn't even a substitute made. Um, the problem co- becomes, what do you do with Lloyd Sam? He does not fit in that formation. Um, does Taylor Kemp have to come off? Um, or do you stick him out wide knowing that he, he's not, 
I mean, we did see a couple times this season there there is some um, developing dribbling ability there where if he has to beat someone, he can. And that makes him maybe a more viable player in that formation than he used to be. I used to be hesitant about people say, well, he can cross, so therefore he would be a good uh, wing back in that setup. But you have to be able to get into position to cross. And I mm-hmm. had doubts last year. Maybe he bridged some of those doubts. Um but yeah, as an emergency, sure, there's always the possibility, and you don't want to make a multi-sub uh, move if you don't have to. Especially if it's late in the games, you probably don't have multiple subs to throw in and adjust everything. Um, but we have to understand that if DC United is switching to a 3-5-2, uh, the situation is already pretty dire. Um, and you might come back against the New York Red Bulls uh, in incredibly unlikely fashion, but that's probably it. It's probably not going to keep happening over and over again. To expect it to keep happening doesn't really make sense. Um, but yeah, you can play a back three where Franklin is the right-sided uh, player in that back line. Um, but I don't think we're going to see it very often, and hopefully we don't. Hopefully United's out in front a lot, and we don't have to see it that often. Um, I would rather not know much about United's emergency, we need a goal look this in 2017. I would like to know their let's protect this lead look uh, for 2017. Yeah, let's kill off a game look. Right. Yeah, that's fair. So now it's everybody's favorite portion of the show, cake or death. Um, or Fox. We actually did get a complaint on Twitter that nobody can remember which one is which for Goat or Fox. So I want to I put Goats one into good. my own. Goats are good. But... On this show, people are having a problem remembering what order the, whether the goat is good or bad. Apparently, we got a we got a tweet okay, saying well, that they didn't know. Uh, so I just, we just, I I want to just put that put that in my column of evidence. Okay. Uh, well, as a, as a dispute, I would like to note to our listeners that if Ben and I are talking about goats, it's a good thing. We think highly of goats. Adam has a problem with goats. That's his problem. <laughs> Uh, but two thirds of the show is in favor of goats. So if a goat comes up, and that's, that's a super a majority. Thing. It's not a. It's not confusing. Don't be confused. We are in favor of goats. And that they is my legal advice to you. God damn. <laughs> uh, I will continue calling it cake or death, where it's much easier to remember which is good and which is bad. Um, so cake or death. We went through every player on the roster in recent weeks. Now it's time for the brain trust. Um, we used to talk about the assistance, which it's harder to do. It was hard to do then, honestly, um, given that we don't really have a lot of information about who's responsible for what on the technical staff. So we, we focus our attention on the, the two names who are really at the top of that particular organizational chart, Ben Olsen and Dave Casper. And today it's their turn. We start with the general manager, Dave Casper, who... I'm not going to lie. He had himself a year. He had himself a good year. Um, I wrote the the piece on the website for for this, and it, it was about as far away from the piece I wrote in 2013 about Dave Casper as you could possibly imagine. And I linked to it just to, to show that effect. Um, 2013 was, was Dave Casper's first year kind of without Kevin, Kevin Payne there to to bounce ideas off of or to approve or suggest things. I don't know what the dynamic was, but in his first year without Kevin Payne around, Dave Casper did not have a good year in his fourth year without Kevin Payne around. Dave Casper had himself a great year. He helped Ben Olsen completely change the style of the team over the course of the season. He got Luciano Acosta in on loan and made it permanent. He kept Steve Birnbaum. He, kept Bill Hamid last year, um, which I think I'll roll that over into this year as well. And uh, generally managed to make the team younger, deeper, and better all at the same time, and also shed salary while doing it. It was it was a fantastic year for Dave Casper, and I am giving him cake. Ben, what say you? Oh yeah, definitely cake. I mean, just for the mid, mid-season deals alone, getting Mullins, getting Sam... Uh, those were masterful moves to pry loose people who weren't getting used well at their old situations or who were just in Chicago and, or not, 
not in Chicago. Uh, that's Niarco, not, not getting used well. Who in he Chicago. also brought in this year. Well, yes, he also brought him in, uh, and nobody gets used well in Chicago because they're a, a trash fire. Uh, but prying Sam loose from the uh, the Red Bulls, who he had fallen a little out of favor. Um, Patrick Mullins was behind uh, David Villa in New York uh, with NYCFC, so obviously prying him loose was uh, a great idea. And yeah, he knows how to make. Uh, get the most value from other people's bench players and turn them into contributing starters uh, for DC United and help make DC United a playoff team again. So definite goat for uh, Mr. Casper. Yeah. There are a couple of GMs in the league who you, you ask yourself, is that person a wizard? One of them is Garth Lagerway. And, and sometimes Dave Casper makes, makes you ask that question. I mean, you should, I don't know why, other teams don't do this, but they should always ask themselves whenever Dave Casper calls calls them, be like, "What did I just lose in this? How how did I just get played? Because I definitely got played." I mean, he's. I think it's less he plays teams the way Kevin Payne used to play teams. Like Kevin Payne used to just get lopsided train trades. I think the league is smarter now than it was then, and Dave Casper is just really good at showing up and saying, "Hey, you've got this guy." you're not really using and i notice you, you you need some salary cap relief how would you like some gam or tam in exchange for that guy you're not using anyway and i don't know if he's just really good at selling it or what but he he gets his man and it's it's great for dc united yeah i would say that that's actually a crucial uh skill set is it's not i mean everyone in the league noticed patrick mullins not playing uh, in New York. So every team that had a questionable striker situation should have been on the phone with NYCFC and Castor managed to get the deal done. Um, most teams in the league, I'm sure, noticed Lloyd Sam starting to not start games because of Alex Mule breaking out. Um, and he managed to get that deal done ahead of the other teams in the league. Um, you know, 19 teams should have been knocking on the door and he managed to beat them all to both of those players. Um, the Niarco deal uh, turned out to be excellent. Um, that one, you know, sort of fell on the team's play, uh, lap a little bit. There was the, the talk at the start of the season that Niarco uh, really wanted to come back to this region uh, due to his success at Virginia Tech. Um, I'm sure if someone else had come along and, and offered a better deal, then that that's what would have happened. But, um, you know, he ended up here and, and you know, good for them for, for figuring out that just because he had missed half a season, you know, the back half of his 2015 was actually really good. Um, he, I think it was like three goals and four assists in half a season um, on a team that was a train wreck in Chicago. Um, but also, I think maybe the biggest thing that Casper did this year was he located an international number 10 that fit what Olsen wants which has been a difficult thing. It's been a thing that I'm sure the team has been looking for years. Um, and to land uh, Lucho and have him fit the the bill so much, um, to be hardworking, to be a fighter, uh, to do the defensive work, as well as being abnormally skillful with the ball, um, that really... It, it, it was a step that needed to happen, and it came through in flying colors. And it's not even like... They didn't find some guy who's like 32 and will be good for a couple years and then have to retire or become a, a bit part player. Uh, Lucho could be on this team for a decade if, if he doesn't get sold um, for millions of dollars. Um, the fact that they built in a, a, a buy-in – I mean, when you get a player on loan in MLS, you're supposed to have a buy clause. Um, but to get one built in that was reasonable, that ownership could actually afford – um, because there's nothing stopping you from saying, oh, well, there is a buy option, and then, then you, it turns out it's like $10 million just to make sure that it'll never happen. Um, to make sure that the clause was actually viable for DC United um, is some pretty excellent dealing, and I think U United's moves this, this season have set them up not just to be good. You know, they got good in the back half of 2016. Um, they should be a very strong team in 2017, they should be good in 2018 and 2019 as a result of these moves. They've set themselves up with a young core. Um, and he also, you know, it's just coming to mind, he also managed to uh, do the business in the offseason already. He he managed to uh, 
re-sign Steve Birnbaum, um, which with, matches... With legit, the, with legit European interest. Right, um, and that matches the thing he did last year where he managed to get Bill Hamid to sign a contract extension. Um, so the good young players that are here that are, are in their – or not have, haven't even hit their prime yet are getting signed to extensions, and we're adding to that guys like Lucho. Mullins is only 24. Um, Ortiz, if he pans out, is 24. Kamara is, what, 21. Um, and then you've got, you know, Buescher – uh, getting picked in the draft, which Casper gets at least some credit for. I don't know exactly how much they divvy up the college scouting, but that turned out to be a really good pick. I mean, people knew that that was an excellent player on a Generation Diaz contract, but it still took a deal to happen. Um, United had to make that work, and then they managed to trade their uh, their number 13 pick to basically make up for the cash expenditure. Um, mm-hmm. So they kind of balanced that whole deal out. They moved up without really losing very much. Um, so that was a pretty clever piece of draft day, uh, dealing. Um, we may, you know, if he manages to, we've got what we're recording on the 27th. So there's four more days left in the year. If he manages to sign, uh, Ian Harks to a homegrown deal in that time, um, I think that would be the, the icing on the cake. It's been a pretty excellent year and icing on the cake was not an intentional, uh, play on words. I just want people to know that <laughs> that was an accident. I can't claim credit for it. Um, <laughs> But if it is icing on a cake, it is uh, the design on the cake is a goat. It's also the uh, goat milk cheese. Pete, <laughs> uh, uh, you'll never be able to see it, but Adam actually <laughs> dropped his head hard uh, when I said that the icing on the cake was in the shape of a goat. Uh, let's. I took the wind right out of his sails. You really did. <laughs> let's move on. The very last cake or death for 2016 is head coach. Ben Olsen, who I think also deserves some credit for this in-season switch from uh, one of the most defensive teams in MLS to literally the highest scoring team in the league over the last three months of the season. Um, Obviously, personnel had to do with that, but so did tactics. He had to give Luciano Acosta the keys to the, the car and basically build a system around him, and he did it, and it worked. And it was a risk, and he was willing to take it, and it paid off. Those are, you know, I think three three big things uh, there. Jason, what do you think of Olsen's 2016? You know, well, even before we consider the Elf skateboarding video. Right. Well, that that's a that's a powerful uh, end note for him. Is uh, yeah the, the longboarding video while dressed as an elf. Um, but yeah. Um, I mean, we do have to take into account that the start of the season after, you know, the 2015 playoff loss came with a talk of, has this team hit their peak playing this way? Do we have to change? Um, kind of, he didn't come out and say, yes, we will be changing, but he did kind of strongly hint at that. But we didn't really see that change early on. Um, Lucho arrived and he was played as a, almost as a second forward. Um, you could easily call the system of 4-4-2 at the start of the year. Um, we weren't, we were calling it four, four, one, one, but it was so close that it might as well have been the same thing. Um, so there was a little bit of not quite having a, a firm grip on what to do with Acosta. Um, not quite being willing to just put it all on, on his plate so early, which has, you know, it, there are, you know, benefits to that. Um, letting him adjust without building your whole team around is, is not the worst idea. Um, so the early part of the season really didn't go very well. The only reason United was still in touching distance with the East is that the rest of the East was also struggling with what to do with themselves. Um, however, you know, once you take that into account that the start of the year didn't go all that well from, from a coaching perspective, you do have to take um, the switch um, you know, using the international break in June to reevaluate and come out with a new formation Um to bounce back from the open cup loss um, or technically not a loss, a penalty kick uh, tiebreaker defeat elimination. Yes. They, they were, they were no longer allowed to play in the open cup. Um, but you know, to use that two week break and actually transform the team a little bit, um, figure out not just a new formation, but a new approach to the game and not just a new approach, but it's more effective. It's more fun to watch. Um, 
it fits the players uh, across the board. It fits the group more. I was about to say more better. That's not good. Um, but it, it, it's a better fit for everyone involved. Um, United is now a team that entertains and wins. They scored a ton of goals at home. Um, not just, I mean, they scored a ton of goals everywhere, but they scored a ton of goals at home. Um, now, they they do still have things to figure out for 2017, um, how to play this style without necessarily getting into as many shootouts. Um, they did con- start conceding more goals than were necessary. Um, this wasn't just a, let's open up and we're going to concede goals sometimes, so be it. It's just how attacking teams end up playing. This was, they were avoidable goals, and the team needs to get better at defending out of this formation without sacrificing the attacking edge. Um, but the good news is that this was an on-the-fly system change, and it worked that well that quickly. Um, and that comes down to the coaching staff. Um, so I think it was a, a pretty successful season on the balance for Olsen. Um, I think maybe the most important thing is that he showed a step that a lot of people doubted he had in him um, to open up and play attacking soccer from the start, not just when his back was against the wall, but and you know from the start of games with you know in like august and september they were attacking even then going on the road and attacking teams um so that's a new step that's a new wrinkle and that's maybe the next step is in his evolution as a coach um but i think overall and we we also saw and you know it's just coming to mind um very effective substitutions not just lamar nagel though he ended up being an excellent choice to sub in the games um, but using the subs bench to really influence games and, and as part of a, a holistic plan, not just saying like, oh, that didn't work, let's send in some subs. It was more like, we want the game to play out this way, and then come the 65th, 70th minute, we can change the game by making this move, and this will lead to more good things. There was a, a full plan involved. It wasn't just, well, that didn't work, what else do we do? Um, right. Which is, you know, that's nice to see, because we don't. there are a lot of MLS teams where that sort of planning doesn't happen. It's just like, uh, send in another guy. I don't know. Um, and it seems like, uh, Olsen, and we've had seasons like this before where his subs bench used back in 2012, especially, mm-hmm. um, the subs seem to be designed to go get goals and, um, change games. And that, that really seemed to come back this year in a good way. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it was a strong season. I think it was a season that points to better things to come as well. Um, so I think it's pretty easy to go with GOAT, but we can't forget the first half of the season. I think that's important to remember. Yeah, I I agree. I think the first half of the season was, I guess the the charitable reading of it is that Ben Olsen wanted to change as he identified after United were eliminated from the playoffs last year. He wanted to change the way they played. He just didn't have the pieces to do it, or at least didn't have the confidence in his pieces at that time to do it. And then once they, once they got Marcelo used to, to being the more defensive central midfielder, which he hadn't been in a while. Once they had Acosta and knew what they had in him, once they got Lloyd Sam out on the wing and, and brought in, especially once they brought in Patrick Mullins, then it was like, okay, the, the reins are loose. You guys go, go have fun. And, you know, they had more tactical instruction than that. This is not a Jurgen Klinsmann team where the tactical instructions are, go have fun. Go express yourselves. Yeah. They, they were a little more nuanced than that. Uh, but but once he felt like he had the pieces, then he was comfortable, you know, letting go and letting letting the team score a boatload of goals. And even if that meant they, they gave some up. And he kept his confidence in guys, even when they messed up. I remember at a season ticket holder event, he... The game after Jared Jeffrey gave up a couple of bad fouls that one of which led to a free kick goal. And I think he made, he had another mistake that led to a goal that he was just directly responsible for. And Olsen said, yeah, you know, he had a couple of mistakes, but if you look at the other things he did, it, it was good. And he kept his confidence in, in Jared Jeffrey, even though he had made some mistakes. I know in the past, Ben Olsen, at least among the fan base, had a reputation where he would be quick to pull the trigger on a guy if if they let him down, especially on the defensive end. And that didn't seem to be the case. He was a little bit looser, a little bit, at least more, uh, a little bit more, 
pragmatic when it came to deciding to to yank a guy. So I, I think you're right that he did grow as a manager over the course of the year. And obviously, I'm I'm giving him cake for this year, even with the playoff exit. Um, I, I think we we saw what happened, you know, I guess almost 10 years ago now when you overreact to an early playoff exit when the other fundamentals are looking good. And, and this team is better now than it was a year ago, even though they exited the year. They exited the uh, the playoffs in an earlier round. I, I am more optimistic going forward now than I was a year ago. And so I, I give both Olsen and Casper cake for that reason. Ben? Yeah, I mean, I've, I obviously agree with all of what you all said. And uh, the talk of Olsen uh, growing brought to mind, uh, I was reading an interview with uh, Jim Curtin about the uh, – the U.S. Pro uh, licensure, coaching licensure uh, course that has been going on this year. Uh, there are eight current MLS coaches in it and then uh, some other coaches. And in the interview with Curtin, he was talking about how one of their uh, big sessions was during that international break for the Copa America. And I mean, obviously, Olsen knew that he needed to change the team at that point because things hadn't been going that great. But I'm it just popped into my head that maybe uh, this course legitimately helped him and helped him think in new ways and helped his evolution as a manager uh, more than just more than he may have gotten without this course. Cause it's taught by two uh, uh, former uh, Dutch uh, teachers who have taught at uh, all levels of, of Dutch football. And um so that just popped into my head, and I'm just wondering if that helped him as well. Uh, it obviously didn't hurt, and maybe that helps Ben Olsen take his next step uh, into the top tier of American coaches. But yes, obviously good. All right, that's it for DC United talk um, for the most part today. Uh, stick around. When we come back, we will have an interview with Ari Gadenson, the owner of Doc FC, the new soccer bar in Ivy City. So stick around. This is Filibuster. Hey, Ben, um, you wouldn't say this is a hostile work environment, would you? You can tell uh, me. Depends. I mean, well, I should ask you. I mean, is are goats hostile? Uh, I think goats are, are hostile. I think that they are secretly trying to take over the world. But but if this were a hostile work environment, or if I were trying to steal your wages, or or do something else oh, nefarious, in a, I'm really not. Uh, but in a workplace environment, you know who to call, right? Because you live in the District of Columbia or Northern Virginia. I, I do. It's the Ehrlich Law Office. It is the Ehrlich Law Office. Uh, they they offer discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions in Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia, which means I can totally create a hostile work environment for Jason. Except, no, he, they, they wouldn't want me to say that. That would be bad. I do not want to create a hostile work environment for anyone. But Jason couldn't call them nonetheless because he lives in Maryland. Sorry, Jason. I'll fight my way through this. All right. <laughs> Uh, they handle workplace discrimination, wage theft, uh, non-compete clauses, and uh, non-solicitation litigation. They handle civil rights and government takings and disability and education law. They handle a lot of things. And if you are interested in a free consultation, head to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. So, Ben, what do you know about Ivy City? Nothing at all. Jason, any familiarity with Ivy City? Uh, I'm trying to think of drinking stories that I have, but I don't think I ever actually got drunk over there. Um, I mean, if, unless it was at a house, you probably right, didn't. That's what I'm thinking is that there is no background for me. Um, I think my dad worked on a house there when I was a kid, but I don't really remember it very well. It's an old neighborhood, um, originally, I think, a black middle class neighborhood, and it's changed with D.C. over the years. And it's also been a very industrial neighborhood that if you've driven out New York Avenue and noticed the giant uh, parking lot of school buses out there next to uh, Club Love, that is Ivy City. And it is changing right now. The old Hex Warehouse now is uh, really nice apartments with a really swanky lobby. Which and is crazy to yeah. see. Yeah. Uh, and I'm used to driving through there and just the 
that old building is just like a visual cue, like, oh, I'm getting close. Uh, I should, you know, focus on what I'm going to do when I get like a mile up the road. Right. More now, now, though, Ivy City is an actual, at least the commercial part of it for Mm -hmm. the first time is an actual neighborhood. There's the Nike store. There's uh, Yes Organic Grocery. There's Planet Fitness and a CrossFit box. There's coffee shops. There's there's other stuff. And in the Hex Warehouse building itself, there are uh, three restaurants all owned by a guy named Ari Gadenson, who is himself, I learned, uh, a season ticket holder with DC United. and he's he's a big fan. He he grew up playing soccer. He played soccer professionally for a while. And when I heard about this soccer bar opening in the Hex Warehouse, um, I reached out to to Ari, and he agreed to sit down and talk with me for a little while about his journey and his new soccer bar. I'm here at Doc FC with uh, with the the brand new soccer bar in Ivy City, DC, and I'm here with the owner Ari Gadenson. Ari, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we start this uh, every episode and every interview with the same question. What are you drinking? Well, right now I'm drinking coffee. That's, that's fair. It's <laughs> middle of the afternoon. Uh, your bartender was nice enough to make me a cabinaccio, which is a nice... Uh, it's a... Uh, well, you you helped design it. Why don't you, you describe it? You know, I, I can't lie to you. I'm not, I'm not much of a drinker. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, it's, I, a, it's, it's like a Manhattan, but with a, a strong bourbon and Italian Amaro in it to give it a little kick. It's nice. I like it. That, that sounds about from how, they, how it's explained to me. <laughs> you focus on the food. Yeah. The uh, food, food's definitely much more a part of mine. But, uh, but yeah, no, I'm more, uh, I'm, I'm heavily involved in the design, uh, the concepts, uh, and then running of the, of the operations. Um, so, yeah, pretty much everything except I, I defer a lot on the alcohol because <laughs> it's, it's not, not my expertise. Fair enough. Um, so I read about your story, um, when I heard about this place opening and I thought it was, it was really interesting. You came from Capitol Hill and played soccer professionally abroad and then came back and weren't a soccer player anymore so much as a, a restaurateur. Um, can you tell us your story? How'd you end up playing in Florence? Uh, so Florence was, it was quite a, quite a journey to get there, I'd say. Um, I, uh, yeah, I grew up here in Northeast Washington and, uh, played most of my club soccer for, a. A team in Virginia. We were uh, Gunston Team America most of the time. I believe we, we switched clubs at some point. Um, it maybe became our own club, but always we were a Virginia-based team. And uh, after 10th grade, I got an offer to go to play for a team in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Okay. And uh, after a bit of uh, going back and forth with my mother, me and my stepdad were able to convince my mother that it was the best option for me. And uh, I took off for Santa Cruz, Bolivia, where I uh, played a few seasons there. And uh, after Bolivia came back to the States, was up in Connecticut with the Connecticut Wolves training. And I got injured and ended up training uh, with, uh, with the Freedom, who my stepdad was coaching at the time. Okay. And from there, I met an agent who said, I'd like to take you to Italy. <laughs> And I was like, man, that sounds great. Um, Not really thinking he was serious or uh, capable. Um, I uh, continued talking with him, and after a few weeks, I I was in Italy. And I I didn't bring a lot of stuff with me. I thought (laughs) thought it was great that I'd ended up in Italy, but I didn't really expect to stay by any means. I mean, uh, from not really being able to make it in the MLS to going to play in Italy was a... uh, kind of wild idea, but not really realizing that there's there's like 10 quality divisions of soccer in Italy, so right. a lot more opportunities. Um, and yeah, so uh, this this agent took me out to Italy, and uh, the first team I tried out for, I ended up signing with. And who was that? That was Ronta. Ronta? Yeah. Okay. Now I believe of a very low division. <laughs> we, were on a, we were on a good run there for a bit. Um, very small t- town up in the mountains of Mugello, okay. so probably about about 45 minutes from Florence, depending on traffic. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, played there for for a season. And then uh, after Ronta was uh, Cherbaya. Then I went to Vicchio and San Gimignano. And, yeah, those, those were the four teams I played for in Italy. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. So at what point did you start the original Ari's Diner 
out there. So Ari's Diner, so if I remember, my dates are always a little screwy, but I think I got to Florence in 99, and then in 2002, opened Ari's Diner. And that was, I uh, this I'm sure of, because I'd gotten to San Gimignano, which was a team that was very well funded for being a lower division team as you know, the great thing about having all these lower divisions is you keep winning and you keep going up. Right. So you get people who make major investments into lower division teams as that may be easier than buying a big team if one wanted to, you know, get involved in owning a, a team. So I'm on this team uh, that uh, is, is being built to at least hopefully get up to like Syria B in the next three years. Mm-hmm. And we have all sorts of, uh, of big time players who... I used to watch on TV and playing for Fiorentina. We had a, a guy, Beppe Argentese, who was uh, the, the center back for Pisa for the whole time that Pisa was in Serie A for the most part. And uh, Giacomo Caligari from the Fiorentina was on our team. And uh, I had a part-time job at a, at a Scottish pub um, as you know, two and a half hours of soccer practice is uh, not a full day for an 18-year-old living abroad. And uh, quickly, these guys were like, hey, so uh, you think you get me part-time work? And I'm thinking, like, all right, I know these guys are making, like, 100 grand a year. And they've been playing in Syria. Ah, like, how, how can they really be interested in working in a bar at night to make some extra money? And uh, that's when I really realized how, you, you know, this is not going to make you set for life by any means, even if you really hit the big time. Mm-hmm. And I clearly wasn't hitting the big time. <laughs> uh, so, so seeing the uh, the void of, of a lack of both late night food and American food in Florence, and there's a giant expat population. There's eight thousand kids minimum who study abroad each semester. And uh, <laughs> there was no there was no diner. So. Or, or real late night food option. Uh, so after coming back from a, a few road trips on Sunday night, being the responsible 18-year-old I was, <laughs> and having no food in my fridge and just being baffled by the idea that I was in a major European city and there was nowhere I could eat, um, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. Uh, and I, had, I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> but I figured it would start slow. And, uh, I, I, you know, because who couldn't be too busy in an American restaurant and food capital like Florence. Um, so yeah, I went ahead and found a, a spot for a very affordable price. I was able to pay for it with what I'd saved from soccer. And, uh, and that was that was the beginning of Ari's Diner. <laughs> now fast forward, you're back in D.C. What brought you, what brought you back stateside? Um, so after I opened Ari's Diner a few years, or I guess within, yeah, within about a year and a half, I developed quite a relationship with the restaurant down the street, Aqual Due. Mm-hmm which my partner Stefano had started in 1978. And uh, so I was probably about 20 at that time. And, you know, uh, younger than the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and he, uh, he comes up to me one day, and my, my, the line coming out of the diner had gotten to the point it was going towards the corner, and his line coming out of well, Dewey was going to the, in the opposite direction, or rather towards me. So our lines were almost meeting at the, in the same place. And one day he, he literally just came up to me and says, who are you? <laughs> you look like you're 12. You remind me of me. And uh, it was a rather strange way of introductions, what have you. But from there, we, we became real good friends. And, and he had a real belief that you need you need youth in these things. And he felt like he was uh, losing his grasp on what, what the, youth, the youthful ideas were bringing. Um, so uh, I entered into a partnership with him and uh, took over... Uh, working in the kitchen, running the kitchen there, and then eventually running the restaurant. And uh, my sister started having kids, and then my mom was always pushing, you know, H Street's coming alive, Barracks Row's walkable. Um, and we, we we grew up on Capitol Hill in a time where Barracks Row was, you know, there was a blockbuster where the Yes Organic Market is now, and you would run there during the daytime and drop off your videos and run back out. And uh, so the idea that, that, that bars and restaurants and things were coming to areas that I used to love that we really couldn't go to. Um, I started coming back and looking, and, and, and then at a certain time, it felt like it's time to move home. And uh, after about ten years in Italy, I said, "Let's do it." And uh, found a location on, on, on Capitol Hill, about five blocks from where I grew up, and uh, 
Yeah. That was my return to DC. All right. Now today you have, you know, a lot more restaurants than that around town, including here in Atlantic City. You've got your diner here. Uh, you've got Doc FC here. Yeah. Was a soccer bar kind of? At what point did you decide you wanted to kind of combine restaurateur and, and soccer into one thing? A long time ago. I think after I did Harold Black, which was my first real bar, mm-hmm. um, which is a place with no TVs, um, no real signage, uh, very quiet bar that we don't allow standing in, it's really promoting conversation and just and, and, you know coming together in groups. Uh, I thought, you know, the only thing that, that this is really missing of what I love is an opportunity to watch soccer as well. <laughs> Um, but but being that the two didn't really mix, I figured you know uh, we needed to do a soccer bar. Um, but I didn't had no idea it would end up in Ivy City. <laughs> Why did you pick Ivy City? I know that's that's something that, that I've been curious about since I, I saw your name attached to these three projects in the, the Hector Warehouse here. Yeah. Um, well, I so I I grew up here in Northeast Washington. I've mm-hmm. always loved Northeast and felt like uh, it just got overlooked. Um, both by development, by people, just to me, Northeast is, is it's a great part of town. Um, and uh, when uh, when Jamal first bought the building, uh, took me down here, and the uh, they had a they had a party when it was still just a, a gutted building. And to me, I I remember very clearly that night, me and my wife were talking, and like, this is sort of the the start of a, a Brooklyn of DC, which is something that I've always been uh, interested in seeing occur, because you know, DC is a bit of a strange city where we had a, a, a sort of island of Manhattan, if you you know for a, mm-hmm. for an easy reference. Sure. Um, you know, the city was built out. We we had over a million residents, and there wasn't really empty pockets. And then you know we had the we had the the riots followed by uh, the crack epidemic and. Mm-hmm. You know, neighborhoods like Shaw, you know, people talk about Shaw, this new rising neighborhood. Like, Shaw was like the epicenter of, uh, of cool at one point. Right. Um, so really, we're just, we're getting back to it. And now that all these neighborhoods are being filled out, now people are going east. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and to, to me, this is really the start of where more creative, exciting things can occur because... Currently, you know, in Penn Quarter and Logan Circle, even in Shaw, that's mm-hmm. just being redone now, uh, it, it's not really affordable for young creative people to to, to try something fun. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a fan of, of <laughs> trying fun things. And, and when it becomes prohibitive, you know, that's when, uh, as we're seeing in Manhattan now, mm-hmm. you, know, you you don't have uh, young, talented, exciting chefs opening restaurants in Manhattan. Right, they're all. In, I mean, not even in Williamsburg anymore. Yeah, they're in their green point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I guess the, the natural trends of where the most exciting creativity can, can exist, those type of things always interest me. And, and, and to me, it's it's moving it's moving east here, and it's starting. And Ivy City is one of the places it's starting. And the Union Market's got a lot of neat stuff happening as well. Um, but for, for whatever reason, uh, this great Art Deco building uh, really... I was drawn to it much more. Yeah, I was talking to your bartender before we, we started recording, and we were both just admiring the what, what you guys have done with the interior of the space here, with the, the tile think. walls and everything, and it fits, it suits the building really well with that Art Deco sensibility, and it, it's cool to look at. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that definitely, you know, in, uh, I, I'm big into to design. I really like to make, you know, I, I like creating spaces, both uh, mm-hmm. both, both physical space and, and you know, and space for, for creativity and, and connection, and uh, you know, going with the, the themes of the building and not wanting to look like a generic sports bar, mm-hmm. um, you know, really getting the idea across. You know, the quality, you know, the quality of our tacos. You know, we have we have handmade tacos that are, uh, I think, phenomenal. <laughs> um, our our cocktail program as well. I think. Uh, is you know it's not your, your it's not your average sports bar, and uh, yeah, the beer list I know and I'll I'll put a plug for this. We were looking over your beer list. Uh, some of the writers for Black and Red United were. We were all noticing it's like these are all really good local beers, and then beers with soccer connections to them, be it Carlsberg <laughs> or 
or Heineken. I'm like, glad people are recognizing. Yeah, it's easy to spot. Like, oh, I know all these beers. Yeah. And there's no Budweiser or, or Miller or anything like that on there, which is it's curated, which was kind of cool to see. Yeah. So thank you. That's that's what we're going for. <laughs> so what is your ultimate ambition here with with Doc FC? Do you want to be place for all soccer fans of all stripes to come together as kind of neutral ground? Do you want to be adopted by fans of a particular team? Um, I mean, for in terms of, you know, for, for D.C., D.C. United is who we'd like to be adopted by. In terms of international, thank you. International, I don't really want to go in a direction and become a, you know, a specific team's bar. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel, I, I'm a big believer in people getting together and you know the, the soccer people getting together, despite who your you know your your preferred European team is or South whatever it is. Um, I feel like those barriers should be able to be dropped. People should be able to enjoy watching games together, and and, and more congregate around the sport um, than around a, a specific club. I was doing my homework before this, reading up uh, on you, and there's there's been plenty written about you, interviews and, and profiles and. Uh, I saw one from a few years ago, and you said that your dream job was running DC United. Yeah, <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> do you keep up with the team? I do. I'm a season ticket holder. All right. Yeah, glad to hear that. <laughs> um, what do you think of the stadium food at RFK? I think it's pretty bad. Not to be mean, but it's yeah. uh, there's it's a struggle. Yeah, there's one thing that I think almost everybody likes at RFK, and it's the same thing: beer. Well, besides the beer, one one food stand, <laughs> one food in stand. particular, it's it's the pupusa stand. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, without <laughs> a doubt, yeah, that's the that's the only way to go. I feel. Yeah, I I, I agree, and I think our listeners are, are pretty up on that yeah. as well. So, have you been keeping up with uh, Buzzer Point, the stadium development? Yeah, there. Yeah. Any any thoughts on trying to to get into? Uh, Help with the food program there. Nudge, nudge I, the organization. I would love to. I've been. I've. I've had a few different conversations with some people. I've, I'm trying to put my name out there. I, I'd love to be involved in it in some way. Um, so that'd be cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to get across to to our listeners before we uh, we pack it in? Um. Please come visit us. Um, I, you know, it's it's a great space. We're. Uh, we want to be a great gathering space for the community, and uh, look forward to seeing people. All right, thanks for thanks for joining us, and I'm sure I'll see you again pretty soon. Sounds great, thank you. That is it for this week. Thank you, Ari, for taking the time to sit down with me and and talk about his project and his his story. I, I hope you enjoyed that interview, um, listeners, as much as I did. Uh, find us at blackandredunited.com. We're on Twitter at filibusterdcu for the podcast, at blackandredu for the website. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. As always, we accept love letters, we accept hate mail, and we accept advertising inquiries. And, you know, if you think of another category of email to send us, we'll probably accept that too. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we are on SoundCloud. Mostly though, tell a friend about the show. That's the best way to spread the word. And we love you even more than we we already do for every time you, you know, bring us up in conversation. For Jason and Ben, and thanking Ari one more time, I'm Adam, and we will talk to you real soon. Say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, Jason.